We're in a series on the good news of Jesus Christ. The series is based out of the gospel, good news, it's the same word, out of the gospel of Mark. If you're watching online and, and you don't have a Bible, maybe you've got a phone, you can download that Holy Bible app, or you can just follow along with the scripture that's going to be on the screen. The gospel or the good news of Mark is in the New Testament. It's in the second half, or it's a little bit less than half of our Bibles. You've got an Old Testament, New Testament. The book of Mark is the second book there, and we're in Mark chapter 1. And we're looking at some verses we actually looked at last week, but I'm going to try to put those verses, like you just saw in the video, where Jesus calls his first disciples to follow him. I'm going to try to put those in the larger context in which we find them. And I also think we need to think about, as a body, as we're looking at the good news of Jesus Christ, we need to think about the current context in which we receive or we hear this good news. And we hear the good news of Jesus right now in a world that's filled with bad news, and if not bad, difficult, tough news. Even in our church family, I mentioned last week several brothers who we have lost during the season of this pandemic, some due to COVID and some for other reasons. But we've lost others as well. We also lost Bill Burchett, who's a longtime missionary, Luana, our longtime women's minister's father, who returned from the mission field after decades of faithful work there who passed during the season. That hurts as a church family. We lost our sister, Sylvia Bond, who spent years forming kids at Harding Academy into the image of Christ, and we lost her too. We've had hard news as a church family. And then I think about the hard news in our world, the bad news in our world. We had this hurricane that ripped through our country again. We've got people without power, people who are suffering as a result of that. We're in the middle of this contentious political season that has the potential to divide not only the world we're living in, but to divide us in the body of Christ. I'm hearing from my brothers and sisters of color, cries for justice. And I long for that as well. And then we're still, still almost eight months in dealing with this pandemic that seems unending. And I think so many of us have in our minds that come January 1, it's all going to go away. But we know nothing is different about January 1 than the end of December, except for a few hours. You know, we're living in this world where it's just this onslaught of tough, difficult news. And so I want some good news. And I turn to the good news that we find in Scripture, this good news about Jesus Christ. And yet we do that in a moment in which there is this tendency to distrust things that are called news, isn't there? To disbelieve what someone claims to be true. And so what I want us to think about today is what is possible in and through me when I believe the good news of Jesus Christ? When I take hold of this good news, what is possible in me? I'm reminded of that old hymn that we used to sing, On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. You remember that? What's possible in you and me if we take hold of the good news? Let's pray as we're going to dive into God's word together. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for your body Thankful for your body in this place. Thankful for your body scattered around the world. I'm thankful to be a part of a great cloud of witnesses who believe in the good news of your son, Jesus Christ, who believe that he is king, 
and who have given him, who have surrendered to his authority and power in our lives. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Miss Ann, Miss Ann Circa, she was on a walk the other day. You know Miss Ann, don't you? Most of you, if you've been a Highland for a while, you know Miss Ann. She's the matron saint of the Highland Youth Group. She, every, every Wednesday night, Miss Ann picks up chicken nuggets and chocolate milk and stuff to make milkshakes to feed our teenagers at the Rising, which is our Wednesday night worship gathering for teens. She's been doing that for years, for decades, really. And then every summer for a week, she feeds hundreds of teens who come to Memphis, including our own teens, who come to Memphis to paint houses as a part of Memphis work camp. She's the matron saint of the Highland Youth Group. It's not just the food. You know, if you know Miss Ann, you've probably been grabbed by Miss Ann by the shoulders. She looks at you real close in the eyes and she'll just speak these words of blessing over you. I know I, you've probably, you've probably gotten these too. I've gotten these letters of encouragement from Miss Ann just out of the blue. I've got a file of encouragement cards from Miss Ann in my office. And uh, the other day, Miss Ann's on a walk. She's walking in her neighborhood. It's a Sunday afternoon. And this young lady pulls up in a car next to her. She sees Miss Ann and she stops. She rolls down the window. Miss Ann can tell that she wants to ask her a question. So Miss Ann leans in, just smiling. Miss Ann, smiling. The woman finally says, she says, you went to church today, didn't you? And Miss Ann said, this was a couple months ago. Miss Ann said, well, yes, I did go to church today. It's online church right now. I love my church so much. It's a special, a special church. And the woman asked, where, where do you go to church? And she said, I, I go to the Highland Church. I love my church. And she said, that's wild. She then explains that she's a visiting angel, which is a, a healthcare provider who visits families who are in crisis due to, to health needs. And she had actually been down the street at another Highland family's house, who's going through a hard time. I've talked about them in recent weeks, been giving them care that morning. And she had watched church with them that morning, watched Highland Church online. And she said, I can't believe that. And she explained that to Miss Ann. And Miss Ann said, oh, I love them. We've been friends for decades. You know what? I am so glad that you are at their house. I bet you are such a blessing to them. And you know what? I bet they're going to be a blessing to you, she said. The woman shook her head. She said, yes, they have been. She said, remind me where your church is. I think I'd like to go. So Miss Ann tells her and, and she drives off. I've been thinking about that story. <laughs> I've been thinking about the fact that this woman was just driving by Miss Ann Cerca on the street. And she saw something about Miss Ann that made her stop her car, reverse, <laughs> roll down the window and say, you look like somebody who went to church today. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Jesus in Mark 1 is walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he comes across these fishermen. Now, before this scene, and we looked at this scene last week, before this scene, Jesus is baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And when he's baptized, God tears apart heaven. He looks down on his son, and he says, you're my son. I love you. You make me so happy. And then Jesus is sent out into the wilderness where he tangles with Satan. And then Jesus preaches his first sermon, and it's a great sermon because it's really short and because it gets to the heart of the good news of Jesus. And this is it. This is in, John, this, sorry, in Mark 1, verse 14. Let's look at this together. Mark 1, 14. 
After John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee announcing God's good news. So that's a key word for this series. We're paying attention here. So Jesus is announcing God's good news in his first sermon. This is it. He's saying, now's the time. Now's the time. That sounds good. Here comes God's kingdom. This is the good news. Remember when we studied the good news a couple weeks ago in the first verses of Mark 1, we put at the center of our picture of the good news Christ, the fact that Jesus is king. That's what the word Christ means. It's not Jesus' last name. The fact that Jesus is king of this world is in some way good news for you and me. And the first thing that Jesus says is what? Here comes God's kingdom. And then he says this, change your hearts and lives and trust this good news. So he preaches his first sermon, and then he needs to go for a walk. And I resonate with that. You know, I'm probably going to go for a walk this afternoon. It takes something out of you to preach a sermon. So he goes on a walk, and he's going along the Sea of Galilee. It's a pretty walk, and he comes across these fishermen. And these fishermen, I want to point out something. They did not hear Jesus' first sermon. We have no indication that they were at the Jordan River being baptized, that they saw the Spirit of God come down on Jesus like a dove or heard God speak from heaven. They didn't see any of that. They're fishermen, so what were they doing? They were fishing. Now, they're here by their boats. Jesus is walking along, and we see this scene. Let's check it out. <clears throat> it's one of those unexpected conversations like Miss Anne had the other day. As Jesus passed alongside the Galilee Sea, he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, <clears throat> They were throwing fishing nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. <clears throat> Come follow me, he said. I'll show you how to fish for people. And right away, right away, they left their nets and they followed him. And after going a little farther, he saw James and John Zebedee's sons in their boat repairing the fishing nets. And at that very moment, he called them. They followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired workers. Do you notice how immediate everything is in this passage? Right away, they followed him. He called them, and they followed him right away. <clears throat> a lot of people who are not part of the Christian faith tradition, maybe you're watching right now, maybe you stumbled upon this, and you don't call yourself a believer. A lot of people believe that there was a man who lived named Jesus, and that he was a great teacher, and he taught great things, and that if you were to follow the teachings of Jesus, your life would actually be a pretty good life. It would, it would be a good life for the world, because Jesus cared a lot about the world. If, if you followed his teachings, that'd be better for most people, but that's kind of the extent of who they think Jesus is. And in Jesus' world, there were teachers who went around teaching things. We called those rabbis. But the thing about a rabbi is a rabbi does not call his own followers or his students. Okay, a rabbi's students or followers call upon the rabbi they want to follow. It's like the college admissions process. Maybe you've gone through that or you went through that with your kids. You study a bunch of different schools. You go on campus visits. And finally, after months, you decide which place you're going to go and which place you're going to give all your money, right? Okay. <clears throat> It's kind of like that with the rabbi. Rabbis don't choose their students, their students choose them. And so we have here, right at the beginning, in all this instant following of Jesus, he calls, they follow. We have this signal that Jesus is not just a good teacher, he's something else. I mean, who has, think about this, who has the ability to call you and at that very moment you would follow and do what they say? In America, we don't give that kind of authority to anybody, not even our elected officials. 
even if you were drafted into the army, it's not instant, it's not overnight. We don't give that kind of authority to anyone in this country, and we pride ourselves on that. And what kind of authority does Jesus have? The kind where he can call you, and you leave your career, your nets, your boats, and you leave your family, your dad in the boat, and you follow right then. Think about that. Who's got that kind of power and authority? Um, Tim Keller preached about this passage. He's, he's a preacher I enjoy a lot. He preached about this passage in New York City a couple years ago. And he was reflecting on the fact that these first apostles, these first disciples of Jesus, they get up and they follow and they leave their careers and their families so instantly. And he said, you know, in New York City, I don't think anybody balks when we say that you've got to put Jesus above your family, because you in New York City, you're all people, most of you who have sacrificed family to be here. You know, he's talking to a group of young professionals, some who are immigrants who've come from other countries, people who've come a long way to New York City, the Big Apple, to make something of themselves, right? To follow a career which they'll be successful. He says in New York, I think it's harder for people to put Jesus above their career than it is for them to put him above their family. They're already used to putting things above their family. Do you think it's that way in Memphis? I kind of think we're wired a little bit differently here in Memphis. You know, the people I know in Memphis, many of you, you know, are very successful, but, but one of the common denominators, and we've talked about this as a staff before, is how it seems like in Memphis, most people who are in Memphis are here because of family. And they've often sacrificed something about their career to be here. You know what I'm talking about. And I think that for you and I, maybe, you know, this call of Jesus the King to place following him, obedience to him, his authority, even over our commitments to our families is something that maybe is a little bit harder for us here in Memphis. Think about that. And we got ball games every weekend. We got tournaments out of town. We got grandkids and grandparents. You know what I'm, I'm talking about? We're about to appoint new elders. We're going to be sharing those names here in just a couple of weeks. And I was talking with one of the men who's a <clears throat> candidate an elder at Highland right now. He called me this last week. He's still got some kids at home, and he was talking about that, still having kids at home, and about the sacrifice of being an elder, the time that takes. And I understand that as a minister with young kids at home, too, so we were talking about that, and he said, um, he said something I'm not going to forget, though. He said, you know what, Eric? The main thing I've tried to teach my kids is that they are not first in my life. And I have tried to teach them that even their mom is not first in my life. That Christ is first in my life. And he said, I'm not going to make my kids go without love. I'm not going to miss any of their ball games. I'm going to be there for all those important moments that they need me. But the most important lesson I can give my kids is that their dad put Christ first. He said, that's what I want them to do. Isn't that the kind of man you want shepherding you at this church? Like a man who knows that Jesus is not just his teacher, but his king. A man who has given to Jesus the authority that he has given to him by God. The one who recognizes that Jesus has all authority over his life, and he is his. For Jesus to do with what he pleases. But of course, if we go back to these disciples here in Mark 1, they did not know yet that Jesus was the king. 
They couldn't have known it. They didn't hear his sermon announcing God's kingdom. Again, they didn't see all this heaven tearing open, doves coming down stuff at the baptism. They didn't see any of that. So why did they follow Jesus immediately? In the fifth century, we've got this church father named Jerome, and he writes about that. He says this. He says, there must have been something divinely compelling in the face of the Savior. Otherwise, they would not have acted so irrationally as to follow a man whom they had never seen before. There was something divine in the Savior's very countenance that men seen could not resist. Something divine in his countenance that they couldn't resist. That language of resisting, uh, not able to resist, it reminds me of fishing. And that may be because this passage is about fishing. Come, you fishermen, and I'll make you fishers of people. Isn't fishing about putting something in the water that fish can't resist? Isn't that the whole thing? Whether it's a net in Jesus' time, caught by a net, pulled out, you can't resist, or a lure, you know, in our time, where you cast out this lure and you try to make it look like something they want to eat. <laughs> I took my boys to um, Timothy Hill, has a location outside of Nashville at Center Hill Lake. Timothy Hill is a ministry that we support. They've got locations in New York, Massachusetts, in um, Center Hill, just outside Nashville, and then also in Searcy, Arkansas, brand new. And in fact, you all helped when you gave to our outreach contribution, contribution a few months ago. We had so much extra that we were able to give some of that to Timothy Hill to help purchase this property in Searcy, where they're going to serve young, young men, young adults who are transitioning into life or coming out of difficult situations. So praise God for your generosity that's making that possible. So we go to Center Hill Lake. <clears throat> we go away up there. They have this retreat center. And I take the boys out on the dock one day, and we're, we're going to fish out on this dock. And I'm just thinking to myself, I'm such a great dad. I got these boys out here, we're, you know, they forming these memories with these boys. They are so lucky to have me as their dad. <clears throat> you know, I'm teaching them how to cast it out there and how to reel it in, how to jiggle that lure and make it look like something alive down there that fish want to eat. And I, we rehearsed that for probably 30 minutes. And finally, I let them go on their own. And it lasts for about a minute. And then they're throwing rocks into the water. They're dipping their poles in the water. Needless to say, the fish resisted. They resisted. Yeah, but there's something about Jesus here that they cannot resist. They can't resist. And what we see here is Jesus modeling what he is about to call the disciples to. He's fishing for people. You know, he's presenting himself to these people. And there is something about Jesus that people cannot resist. And when they see him, he grabs hold of them and he lifts them out into this new life they never thought possible. I mean, do you remember when you came to Christ? You remember when you were baptized in water like this behind me? I don't know, maybe it was at this youth rally and y'all been singing songs all night and <clears throat> your tears are running down your face and you went down front and you just something about Jesus you couldn't resist. Or maybe you were an adult. You've been trying all these different things in your life to make your life work. Your life was falling apart, falling apart. And you heard this good news of Jesus and you just couldn't resist it. You remember that? You remember that? These guys are caught in the net of Christ. And it's a blessing to them. They leave everything for it. And then Jesus says this, so he says, come follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people. And at that moment, they were probably snapped out of this daze that they had been in. And they're like, say what? 
I recognize in you, Jesus, that you are something more than a teacher. That you have a kind of authority, and we're going to see that word show up again here in just a second. You have a kind of authority that I couldn't possibly have. And so I believe that you are capable to take hold of people in ways that I never could be. But Jesus, you may be forgetting I'm actually just a fisherman, not a fisher of people. I don't have the same kind of authority that you had. Do you resonate with that? You know, last week we talked about that this is our calling. As we go into the world to be the church, we are called to fish for people. That is to bring other people into the body of Christ. That's actually why we exist. Jesus calls us with that end in mind. This is our calling. Doesn't that scare you? It scares me. Eusebius, this is another church father. I'm not going to read this whole quote, but he wrote about this. This has been scaring people for centuries. He wrote this almost 2,000 years ago. Listen to what he says. How can we do it? The disciples might reasonably have argued. How can we preach to Romans? How can we argue with Egyptians? How shall we persuade Persians, Armenians? He goes on and on and on. And then down at the end, he says, what hope of success can we have if we dare to proclaim laws directly opposed to the laws about their own gods that have been established for ages among all nations? By what power shall we ever survive such a daring attempt? We can't do that. So here, I want us to read on. Get out your Bible here. Let's look at these next verses because what Jesus does next is so awesome. He says, let me show you by what power and authority you can do this. All right, let's look. Let's read on. This is verse 21 of chapter 1, Mark 1. Verse 21. Jesus and his followers went into Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue and he started teaching. And the people were amazed by his teaching, for he was teaching them with authority. There's that word. Not like the legal experts. Suddenly there in the synagogue, a person with an evil spirit screamed, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know what you are. You're the Holy One of God. Silence, Jesus said, silence. Speaking harshly to the demon, come out of him. And the unclean spirit shook him and screamed, and it came out. And everyone was shaken and questioned among themselves, what's this? A new teaching and with what? Authority. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. He even commands unclean spirits and they obey him. Right away, the news about him spread throughout the entire region of Galilee. There's so much I'd like to say about this story, but, but just briefly, here is the power and authority of Jesus on full display. I mean, think about the people in our lives who have power and authority. Uh, They have power and authority to make laws. They have power and authority, perhaps, to tell us what to do and what not to do. Wear masks or not wear masks, stuff like that. Uh, Some have power and authority even to send us into war, something dreadful like that. There are some who have great power and authority. But do you know anyone on this earth who has the power to command unclean spirits to flee and the demons do it? Right? Don't fall into the myth that our only problems in this world are problems that we can see all around us. What Jesus invites us into is a world in which we realize there are powers and forces out there so, grow, so much greater than we could possibly imagine, and we need somebody with authority over those. And the one whom the demons see and tremble at is the only one worth authority in my life. Does that make sense? Like nobody else 
has this kind of authority, is deserving of my submission like this one is here. He commands the demons and they see him and they flee. Brian Blount, he wrote about this. He was reflecting on the slave trade in America. And he talked about that the slave trade began to crumble, not just when Abraham Lincoln initiated the, or uh, released the Emancipation Proclamation, but it really began to crumble years before at the start of the Underground Railroad when slaves began to escape from the bondage of slavery and flee to the North. And he was reflecting on that in this passage. And he said this, and it resonated with me. He said, each successful escape was as damaging to the system of institutionalized slavery as each one of Jesus's successful exorcisms or healings had been to the continued dominance of the realm of Satan. You know what? Those first disciples could see in Jesus was this authority that was storming the gates of hell. You know, this authority by which there were these cracks and the evil forces that have us in chain, that have us in bondage, the things we do in our life that we don't want to do, they could see these cracks beginning to emerge as Jesus commanded those spirits, as he had authority over even those spirits. They could see that in him, and so they were so glad. They could not resist when Jesus takes hold of them and he plucks them out of that, out of that world where those powers have a grip on us and brings us into this new world where we can actually breathe. And so I think to myself, what if we had that kind of authority? You know, what if the church could do that? In Mark 6, just a few verses later, and we looked at this last week, a few chapters later, Jesus sends out the disciples. You remember what he tells them? I give you authority, he says. The Gospel of Matthew, just before Mark, it ends like this. Do you remember this? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is Jesus talking. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why do we go? Because he's got the authority, but he goes on. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and what? Surely I am with you always to the ends of the age. He's got the authority, but who's he with? Me. He's with you. So who has the authority? You do. Miss Anne is not special. That sounded wrong. This ain't special. But she's no different than you or me. She's the matron saint of our youth group. She gives herself to this church in so many ways. But that woman who drove by her that day, she didn't know about all that stuff. She didn't know about all that stuff. She just saw in Miss Anne an authority that caused her to stop her car, put it in reverse roll down the window and say, you went to church today, didn't you? When you were baptized into this water behind me, or into water like that water, you became different. You were baptized into Christ Jesus. 
And when you left that water, Jesus went with you. You don't go into this world to go fishing all by yourself. You don't go on walks in your neighborhood all by yourself. Wherever you go, you go in the power and authority of Jesus Christ. You go with the king. Have you ever walked into a room with somebody who's a little bit bigger deal than you? And you know them before you walk into that room and you walk into that room and you know you're with this big deal and it feels kind of good. You know what I'm talking about? That's how it is for us in the world. We don't go out there in fear and desperation. We go out there knowing that we go with the king. That he's with us everywhere we go. And what we thought was not possible in him is possible. In this moment, church, we can do great things for the kingdom of God because we're with the king. And that's why. It's not because you're fancy. It's not because you know the Greek or the Hebrew. Or you can recite the Ten Commandments or you know the 12 apostles. You probably can't even list those off. I don't know if I can, right? Okay. The reason you can do great things for the kingdom of God, the reason you can bring people to Christ is because the king is with you. He's fishing with you. 